Welcome to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and turns of all the important relationships in your life. I'm Ben Azevedo, your backseat driver, your bratty brother, and your contentious child. I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapist, reformed angsty teenager, your mechanic. I'm Dr. Don Fernando Azevedo, clinical psychologist, executive coach, and voiceover artist, your extremely patient navigator. Please take the wheel, listeners, and keep all children buckled. Hmm. Please take the wheel, listeners, and keep children buckled at all times. All children buckled at all times. All children all buckled all times. (laughs) Who wrote this? Today's quote is by Benjamin Spock. All the time a person is a child, he is both a child and learning to be a parent. After he becomes a parent, he becomes predominantly a parent reliving childhood. I feel like that quote is some like Benjamin Button stuff. A little bit. (laughs) Do y'all know who Benjamin Spock is? No, but I know who Benjamin Button is. <laughs> so Benjamin Spock was a an author, a psychologist and an author in the 60s, I think it was, and wrote what was then the key book about how to parent your kids. And parents would go out, read this book, and then try and apply everything that he talked about. How did so, that work out? A, a lot of it worked really well. Some of it didn't work as well as Spock probably wanted it to work, but <laughs> you know, it's hard to convey everything in a book. That's true. If we just relive back one week, we were talking about conflict in romantic relationships and we're keeping it in the household this week with a discussion on conflict between parents and children, which we have some of on this show. (laughs) Last time I suggested that romantic conflicts were probably the most common thing y'all deal with. Do you think uh, parent-child conflicts are maybe the second most common? Uh, Those are the ones that I deal with the most. So I think Don Mm. probably works with the marriages more often. I work with the parent-child conflicts a lot. All right. Fair enough. In early in my career, I did a lot more child work, but yeah, now I don't, I do very little of it. Don, why did you pick careening as the title for this one? So careen means to move swiftly and in an uncontrollable way in a specific direction. That seemed to encapsulate my experience of parents in conflict with their kids. They move too quickly and often to judgment. They become emotional and express it poorly, all with the hope of teaching their children how to live while exhibiting the exact opposite of what they desire the outcome to be. Sounded like careening to me. (laughs) Yeah. Uncontrolled. Okay. Yeah. But in a specific direction. I get it. All right. Cool. Yeah. That makes sense. That also just Um, sounds like my teenage years. (laughs) Are you saying that that our parents were exhibiting the opposite of what they wanted from you? No. Or you were careening. I was careening throughout my entire teenage years. And before that, but my teenage years were specifically bad. So Don, you actually mean the parent in your version of the title, that the parent is careening because they are not controlling their own emotions and the response to their child. So although Kim, what you were careening and you felt like your emotions were going everywhere and your behavior was flying everywhere, hopefully I at least responded in a way that helped calm you and let you reflect on what you really wanted to do. Yes. However, I tried not to careen. It has completely ruined the phrase, help me understand. Which you use frequently now. So I don't think it's completely ruined. And I physically (laughs) cringe 
whenever I say it. It is a great phrase. It is incredibly therapeutic. It helps people calm down, relax, see it from the same point of view. It is a great phrase. And I hear it and go, ah, I won't. I refuse. (laughs) I can't. So maybe you can recontextualize it as how much I love you. I have been in therapy for many years and have yet to... We just find other ways to use phrases for me. I'm learning this too, is the one my therapist used. Oh, that's a good one. So where does conflict start in these parent-child relationships? When the kid is born. (laughs) Although that's true, at least metaphorically, conflict starts in parent-child relationships at about the same space that it does in any relationship. There are two points of view that differ from one another. Fairly early on, kid learns to say no. There's conflict before that even, because kids can express a lot of things without even having any words, as I've learned. But they learn to say no. And now you have a parent says, do this, or even do you want that? And the kid says no. And that may be a conflict. I think that's a starting point. I want to try and share an example here. Of all places, I was on TikTok, which I don't (laughs) belong on. So I'm on TikTok. And there's a woman on there who does a positive parenting account. And she's just, every time I see one of her videos, I'm like, yeah, whoa, it like blows my mind. It's not, she gives specific examples, which I'm going to do a bad job of trying to remember. But she said something like, here's what I say to my kids when we're trying to get some things done that they don't want to get done. We're going to make a list of your need to's and your want to's and say there's three things on each list. You got to do all six of these things and you can't do two of the want to's in a row unless you've finished all of the need to's. And then she even gets into if the kid still doesn't want to do the need to's that we agreed. We made this list together and you agreed to do these things. So if you don't do them, you're not keeping your word to yourself. And I know you want to be a person who keeps your word to yourself, who like has your own control of your own like destiny and that kind of and just keeping it very like positive and very not in a contentious where it's a conflict between the parent and child. But again, like the same side of the table, right? Like the kid has input into these things that they need to get done and has the personal responsibility. And I was just like, man, this woman's got it. She knows what's going on. So she I'll does. try and uh, I'll find a link to her account and, and drop oh, It's it. funny because you bring up the one of the list of need to do and want to do. I remember doing and, those. Yes. And one of the things, Ben, you figured out really early is if you got all of the things you needed to do done, you had no worries in the world and could do whatever you wanted for as long as there was until bedtime. Yeah, it backfires a little bit when you become an adult and you realize that there's no end to the need to list. Uh, yes, yes. Which I did. I adjusted. I learned. I figured out how to take time to do want to things in between my need tos. But and in some ways, I'm very bad at it still. I was just telling Papa off the show how I've been trying to deliberately take all of Saturday off. Don't work on Saturday. Because with podcasts and stuff and a full-time job, like I end up editing podcasts almost every day of the week. Like I work when I'm not at work. I work all the time and I still have downtime, but it is very hard for me to put things down and, and it freaks me out to sit and have a day and be like, I can do whatever I want today. What should I do? I don't know. I don't know. 
It's funny because in retirement, that's one of the things that really makes people sick is that they don't have any structure to their day and they don't know how to structure their day. It becomes very difficult. Now, here's the thing when I think about retirement or like magically becoming insanely wealthy. If I'm not worried about making any money, I feel like I would be fine. I would fill my time with all kinds of things and I'm very good at structuring my time, but I worry. So like for me, it's this control thing. If I let myself relax into not getting things done, I'll never get another thing done in my life. (laughs) And so I stay working on things because I fear that if I'm like, it's fine to just spend every evening like sitting on the couch that I'll never get off the couch again, which I don't think is true, but it's how I feel. Well, and your couch mm-hmm. is very comfortable it's, and also sometimes hard me, to get off of. That's true. That's an interesting description of what anxiety is. I don't like, no. Yes. Uh-uh. <laughs> no. Yes. I refuse. I refuse both of you. I'll hang up this call right now. Podcast done. Well, and it's interesting. <laughs> we're talking about conflict, the want to and need to's. And I remember getting into it with mama about these things, which listeners... If you haven't heard, I was an awful teenager. Yeah, go back and listen to the mother-daughter episode. Oh, yeah. So it really was me and mama going at it because she was there for the weekday throwdowns. And I do remember doing the essentially want to, need to lists. I don't think they were labeled that way, but I do remember doing them with her. And there was a lot of fighting, but again... I was careening through my teenage years. Mama was careening, trying to understand what in the world was going on with me. So there's a lot of non-structure approach to what we were attempting to structure. And we're looking at conflict and the power differentials and the communication differentials. Mama and I communicate very differently and structure our lives very differently. Kim, you bring up an important point, and that is that the parent-child relationship is an unequal power deal. The parent has power and the child really does not. And sometimes it's the right thing to do for a parent to uh, assert authority. This is how we're going to live in the world. And if you don't do that, right, if you treat the relationship as we're equal in power, the child will feel increasingly unsafe because they don't know the world. They don't know what to do. Even if they think they do. Even if they think they do, they really don't. And they respond better to someone saying, Here's the way we can do this, but that has to be done respectfully, but without releasing the power that you have as a parent. And the child may not express feeling unsafe in the way that an adult would express that or expect it to be expressed. So this could be the kid having a temper tantrum or being really angry or other emotions that aren't necessarily, if you're an adult and you're feeling unsafe, you maybe are scared or like you would say something about that. Kid may not have that language or even realize that's what they feel. Sure. It also might present as depression or not wanting to get out of bed or failing school in some severe cases, eating disorders, self-harm, that type of thing. Or demanding things that are completely unrealistic or becoming a bully. Because they're trying to control things they don't know how to control. So at the end of the day, respect and power are not the same thing. You can be in a power position and be respectful. And you can be in a less power position and be respectful because they're two different behavior sets. So should we all treat our children the way like we treat our employees at work if we're bosses? If you treat your employees well, yes. Respect, but also power. There's power because in the work setting, the boss sets 
here are the goals, here are the expectations, yeah. and then turns it over to a now adult, hopefully, um, unless we're talking about child labor stuff, but an adult who has the capacity to problem solve and find a solution to get to the outcome requested by the boss. Yes. And if you translate that into parenting, sure, you would just be setting goals that you know that your kids are capable of figuring out and achieving. And yeah. rules around yeah. the home. Yeah. Right. Because at the end of the day, the parent has to set the rules and the guidelines of how to live in the community of the family. Clear expectations that are consistently adhered to create a sense of predictability that helps anyone feel safe, particularly kids who don't have experience in the world. So what you're saying as a parent becomes what their world really is. The rules can be open to influence, but not a reversal where the child sets the rules and guidelines. That's the difference in the power deal. Do you remember Veruca Salt from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? I sure don't, but I saw this note in the notes and I was like, oh boy. She's the one who demands a squirrel. Yes, when they were doing the nut uh, shelling. But before that, if you remember the very opening scene of her coming into this, she was demanding that her father have all of his workers shuck all of the Willy Wonka bars to find the golden ticket. And uh, they hadn't found it soon enough. And she was complaining and he was trying to make it better for her. Placate. That's where a child has become the parent and is studying the guidelines and rules and is unrealistic in what they're doing. Is that the child becoming the parent or the child becoming a dictator of the family? But that's what he's saying about a shift in power. The child right. is setting the... Yeah, so, it's a dictator. Saying, do this, do right. that. You're right, a dictator. The parentified child implies that the child is now parenting the parent. And in that case, that's not necessarily what the child is doing. When I think of a parentified child, usually what I'm thinking about is the child who's taking on emotional labor and emotional care and more of that type of thing, where in this case, it is the child becoming the dictator of the family and grasping power with no respect. Yep. So what is respect then in this particular case? Oh, respect geez. is listening to the thoughts and feelings of the child and taking them seriously, taking the kid's point of view seriously and being understanding of the child's frustration when whatever they want to do is thwarted by the parent because the parent says this is not what's really going to Or uh, the you have to external force because I know Ben experienced this and I also experienced this of being thwarted by like school and school expectations. Mm -hmm. We were frustrated and upset with that foundation of power, which wasn't in the family. Yes. So important. And the power part is holding the boundary that was set. So again, thinking about Veruca Salt, Mr. Salt couldn't tolerate his daughter's negative emotions and would pay any amount to relieve them. So the nut thing later on in the film where he asks, so Willie. Wonka, how much would you pay? Uh, how much would it cost to buy one of these squirrels? And Willie was like, they're not for sale. And he got really upset. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, she was sucked down she a tube as a blueberry? the bad nut. No, that's so parents are not friends to their kids. What? <laughs> parents can be friendly, right? But they are not friends to their kids. Can we be friends now? It changes, right? The role changes. And it, certainly I have no power over the two of you because you're adults <laughs> and Finally. You your, own, <laughs> your own choices. Yeah, I remember right. getting my tattoo when I turned 18 and texting mama and papa going, I'm getting a tattoo, question mark. And papa responds with, is that a question or a statement? And I was like, I don't know. I guess I was 20. 
something when I got that tattoo. I wasn't 18, but sure. Ben, you did it in your freshman year when you called me and said, is it okay if I go to Atlanta? <laughs> yeah, but that I was legitimately asking you. Right. And then you were like, it's up to you. The question. Oh, I hated was, that. Yeah. It's much easier to have somebody else make decisions for you, dear listener. I don't know if this has been your experience, but. So that's part of the feeling safe when there's structure, which right. your small child who responds significantly more variable to situations really likes that structure it helps them feel safe but eventually you have to provide that structure for yourself so you have to learn how to choose and to accept the consequences of that choice and that's really what parenting is and it's so special of a relationship you'll only have most people only have a few parents in their life if they're lucky and their parents have stayed together they have two if their parents divorce they may have four or more than that and all of those people may be significant and important to the child, but they're not friends. You'll have millions of friends. They'll come and go. Your parents. Whoa. All right. All right. For I'm a man who constantly claims to have no friends, I want to know where he's getting that millions. stat from. Well, millions of friends. <laughs> That's a lot of friends. Papa Are you counting your Facebook friends? Is that what you're doing? Papa actually befriended all of New York City before he had kids, but <laughs> now it doesn't count. He has no friends now. <laughs> Right, I gave them. But all he's up had to millions. <laughs> Don't get it twisted, listener. He's had millions. Uh, Caught him. But parents <laughs> really have to treasure the the role that is parenting and live up to it because it's a very high standard to yeah. be a good parent. Papa's got a treasure getting roasted by his kids on a podcast every week. I don't mind. He treasures it. <laughs> he really it. does. It's just it makes it no fun at all to roast him. I definitely uh, still have fun. High standards. What do you mean by high standards? Parents are the primary teachers for their children. They teach them how to live in the world. What does it mean to be an adult to make your own decisions? Only parents can do that. Lots of other people will try, but parents do this. And the way that they do this primarily is by living the life that they want their kids to live, behaving in ways that live the life that they want their kids to live. Modeling. Well, that kind of ties back into the last episode where mm -hmm. we were talking about if you do the personal work to live a life that's full, I'm not going to remember all the words, but that's full of like honor and respect and listening and all of that, then it's not as much work when you're trying to do those things with your significant other. Kind of similar here with parenting. If you are doing the work to live the life that you want to live and live a good life, then it's a little bit easier to be modeling that for your child. And yeah. also, as you model it, your child picks up on those behaviors and starts to respond in kind. Mm -hmm. Not Absolutely. everybody agrees on what being a good person is, though. But that's their choice. I don't get to dictate that for them and they no, don't get to dictate that for me. So Kim is right. What the social scientists call this is modeling. And that's the primary way that parents teach. Coaching is another way that parents teach. This is different than modeling. So coaching is a process where you help your child describe the problem they're experiencing and then help them consider the options they have for how to respond. This is the this thing is Kim place. was really bad at doing. Kim was horrible at responding to this. Yes, it took time, Kim, but you actually did. It took a lot of patience on my part to get you to slow down. Your first response was, I can kill them. <laughs> or punch them in the face. That was my punch, usual default. It became punch them in the face. At first it was kill. Oh. 
Um, I'm glad I got slightly less violent. You did. I still might punch time. people in the face, though. And part of that was because you recognized that really wasn't a solution to your problem. Kim did not learn via coaching very well until she was older. It, it took a hot minute for me to understand this concept of problems and taking information and problem solving outside of the one thing that came to mind. I was not big into compromise. Yeah. It was hard for you to listen to other people's points of view. That was difficult for you at the time. And coaching actually requires that you take into account the solutions that you have come up with as a child and evaluating their efficacy as it goes forward. And the efficacy part is often where the parent says that's a solution, but what would happen next? And then what would happen? Right. And part um, of my big frustration with this was none of my solutions were viable. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But you understood that over time. <laughs> but and I started, didn't like it. <laughs> well, yeah. And that was the Nobody biggest frustration. It. Even my solution to my problems now are not viable. I can't marry well, someone for their health insurance, unfortunately. <laughs> All right. So anyway, coaching is a way to demonstrate respect and lower the power approach because you're helping the child learn how to synthesize information and think and problem solve and anticipate outcomes with different options and ultimately choose for themselves what they will do next in their life. And if you teach that to kids relatively early on, so from elementary school roughly forward, kids get better and better at realizing how efficacious they are in the world and and the fact that that they actually determine a lot of the outcomes in their life coaching requires parents to suppress their desire to solve the child's problem or rescue the child and unfortunately that has become part of the norm out there is parents trying to rescue their kids and that doesn't teach them how to live or how to choose which is so frustrating because now as an adult i want someone to rescue me unfortunately no one's going to rescue you I know. Giving up, living your own life, letting someone else live it for you. Would you really want that? Sometimes, yes, because I'm feeling really mopey and anxious and I need someone to put the structure in my life. That'd be you, girl. That'd be you. So the other part that's really hard about this and the reason I say there are high expectations is because parents really need to intentionally create a family culture. A way that people will interact with one another. Now, you can model this culture off of like media. You could pick like a movie. You could do like a Mad Max style family. Yeah, sure. Where everybody's out there scrambling for resources and racing cars into each other. You could do your Fast and Furious. It's all about family, except for the people who aren't in your family. You got to beat all of those guys. But at the end of the day, you're having a barbecue. Yeah, actually, I thought that's where you would go first as Fast and Furious. Not <laughs> no, I was just thinking, I, no, I was thinking of like dystopian things to try and model a family culture. I actually really love the idea of a family just, I think it's like a funny short film or something. A family deciding to be like, our family culture is Mad Max. Like we're going to fight over some you, single resource movie, right? Really some insane pop media version of families. Like that you want to copy? Yeah. I can't think of one that I would be I guess maybe the Adams family. I would well, usually the Adams family. <laughs> usually I and if you're talking about media, there's there has to be conflict for it to be interesting. So there's always right. flaws in all the characters, right? I was thinking yeah. about a show like like Modern Family, I think has some very cute and like wholesome family values, but there's also a lot of flaws and like conflict and problems because it's you know, it's a show. All right. So conflict standards are high. 
how do parents handle conflict with their children? Is it different, the same, somewhat the same? It's probably some, I'm going to guess it's somewhat the same. Yes, it's somewhat the same and a little bit different. It's very similar to how you handle conflict in a romantic relationship. The only difference is the power differential. So at first, you listen to the child's point of view. Let's say the child says, I want cookies before dinner. Oh, Kimmy, are you going to be the child? I can be a child. In the role of child, Kim Azevedo. Heck yeah. Child's point of view. I want cookies before dinner. So acknowledge the desire and reiterate the clear expectation. That might sound something like, I can see you want cookies now and you're hungry. Cookies are a dessert and come after dinner. Carrots and grapes are appetizers and appetizers are what come before dinner. Carrots are gross. That's why I threw grapes in there. (laughs) (laughs) And then you might redirect the child to a different activity or give them a handful of grapes if they're really hungry. Because sometimes that's why kids are acting out. Or pull the mama. Drink a glass of water. Okay. So you're listening. How is that different than clarifying the expectation? I see the question you wrote, Papa. Why listen in the first place? Why not just clarify the expectation? But aren't you doing it? How is that different? Because you could, the first sentence of your response is, I can see you want cookies and you're hungry, which is the listening thing, right? You're saying, I've heard what you said. You're Mm -hmm. hungry and you want cookies. I get it. But by responding at all and engaging in the conversation, it's clear that you're listening. Is it not? Yes. So what you're not doing is uh, working with the child to find solutions that would work for both of you. If you just skip to cookies or dessert and you can't have them before dinner. Right. Mm -hmm. It's also really dismissive. You're disregarding that they've said really anything. You're just like, okay, fine. The answer is no to that. Uh, (laughs) And. But it is. It is no. And it feels a lot more genuine and comfortable when. It's explained further. Than and where that. there's an option for yes, what would conform? Yeah, I'm not saying take away the carrots and grapes. I'm saying if the rule is you can't have cookies before dinner, I don't, I can't, I don't really see the point in, ref, in bothering to reflect to the child. <laughs> I get that it's more respectful. I get it. But is it really so different to just say, hey, you want cookies? Those come after dinner. You can have carrots or grapes instead. I am listening to you. I heard your request. I'm reacting to that, but I'm just being ruder about it. I- Let's imagine that this is a four-year-old. Okay. It doesn't make as much difference when they're four. It does when they're 14. Okay. But I would speak to a 14-year-old differently. I assumed this was a four-year-old request because of the content. Right. But they may not respond to you that way. So again, modeling is important. And if you model this kind of respectful communication at age four, you're much more likely to get it at age 14. All right. That makes sense. The other part is sometimes what the kid says influences how you might find a solution. So for instance, mama and I wanted quiet time when you were little. This was shortly after Kim was born. So she was easy to put down. She went to sleep pretty, pretty well. (laughs) But Ben, you were more difficult. And so you would come out of your bedroom and ask for things or interact with folks. And and that was like, come on. So we listened to you and said, what happens? And you said that sometimes you're just not tired enough to fall asleep. So we worked through that with you to find a solution where you could touch on your lamp. There were books on the side of the table. You could read as many books as you wanted. When you got tired, turn off the lamp and go to sleep. 
And that was a solution that worked for you, kept you in your room and gave mama and I what we wanted, which was quiet time to slow down in the day and reconnect with one another. So sometimes listening makes a difference. I can't imagine a time in my life where I was not tired enough to go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly not true when you were four to about six or seven. Wow. Wow. Sorry. I can't imagine that skill set either, but I know it happened because I remember getting written up in like first grade for talking during deer, the drop everything and read. Benner, what you're struggling with is the level of power in the relationship. So reflecting. Your your next point is about reflecting the thing. And I just, yes, that's what I'm struggling with. If... (laughs) If you are exerting power and a rule, does it matter that you're reflecting the point of view of the other person? It does because it's, I get it. It's more respectful. And if you want the child to be respectful later, you need to model that as a young child. I Yes, I get that. Okay. I just, I think there is, I, I think I was exaggerating a bit with the cookie example and getting too rude. I think there is a nice way to say that doesn't, to me saying... I can see you want cookies and you're hungry is that reflection, which is at that like relate like significant other level thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, the kid doesn't need that. I can show that I was listening and I'm reacting and responding to their need without that part. But I don't know, maybe I'm just splitting weird hairs. I, I wonder if this goes back to you got really angry with me. I think it was third or fourth grade. And you came back to me and said, you lied to me. And I looked at you and said, what did I lie about? And you said, you made me believe that adults would actually listen to me, something along those lines. Oh, Um, this was later. This was like middle school. All right. So it was middle school. You remember the story better, but you said something about you lied to me. You said that uh, you taught me that adults would listen to me by doing what I did with you. And that's not really true. (laughs) Yeah, it's still true. Adults still don't listen to me. I, I guess. So you're saying that you overdid the reflection and then I didn't yes. get that. And yeah, what I was mad about at that time, what I remember is various authority figures as a kid in like late elementary school to middle school or so, less so in high school, I think, would establish rules for things and then break them themselves. Yes. And then when I pointed out that they were in violation of their own rule because I have always been and will never stop being a paladin they would ignore me or not respect that opinion. Yes. And I found this baffling because Don and Janice would never have done that. If they set a rule, they also would have obeyed that rule. Yes. Because they also wouldn't have set a rule that they didn't want to obey. Like we would have just figured out, obviously there's like limitations on a kid, whatever. I mean, and it was all stupid things, but it made me really mad that the other adults in the world did not listen to my opinions the way that you did. Yes, that's true. Or weren't consistent. Yeah. (laughs) That one was a real reality check, uh, lack of consistency in the world. It's just interesting that you also note in our notes that you don't ask permission to share your point of view with your child because that's an imbalance in the power dynamic. Correct. So again, like the answer to the cookies before dinner remains no. Nothing about that changes. Nope. But saying no in a respectful way i think is what it boils down to and oh. offer and offering the alternative option and coming to a solution that meets the child's need in some way i think with Let's, the cookies thing i feel like where i would go as a parent 
just brainstorming here, is asking questions of the child. Like, I want cookies before dinner. Okay, when do we usually eat cookies? Yep. After that, dinner. Okay, right. so it's probably not going to happen before dinner. Ease them into it. Maybe we could eat something else before dinner. Is there anything else you would like to eat? And so, then, yeah, would you like the glass of water? Maybe sure. we could have some grapes or something before dinner. A snack. And it depends on the age of the child and what the foundation is that you've set. But you guys just told stories a little while ago about how you experienced the power of parenthood from me in that when you were allowed to have a tattoo, because after 18, your body is yours, you still asked. And Ben, you were older than 18, and you could make a decision about whether you had the funds and the ability to go down there and whether it would affect your schoolwork. And yet both of you deferred to the power. So I'm going to defend myself a hot minute on that one. The power of Papa parenting. Because when I texted you, the exclamation point was first. It was, I'm getting a tattoo, exclamation point, question mark. <laughs> it was very much a statement, but then also, oh no, are you going to judge me for this? Which, like going back into my teenagehood, I have consistently had a fear of disappointing you with my life choices. And mm -hmm. as we can tell by this episode, many of my life choices were not ideal. My, my initial responses to situations were not great solutions. So I guess perhaps maybe I question a lot of my life choices because I recognize that many of my initial <laughs> solutions are not possibly the I, best. And through think, all of it, I have loved you consistently. It is true. That's very sweet. I'm baffled by that. I think that my the point at which i started to really figure out how to make those bigger decisions on my own was when i started asking either you or mama for advice on something and you would give me your opinion on what to do because you usually would give mm -hmm. an opinion you'd make sure. it clear that's not you don't have to do this but here's what i would do because as often i was saying what would you do if you mm -hmm. were faced with this choice or wanted to do this thing and I stopped liking your answers. I was like, I don't, that's not right. I don't agree with that. That's not what I want to do. It's not. And now there are plenty of times as a teen or whatever that I didn't like your answer either. But usually there was some part of me that was like, yeah, though, that's probably the right, that's the right <laughs> choice. <laughs> if I'm really being honest sure. with myself, he's not wrong. But I started realizing like, oh, you're not in this situation with me. That's right. And I don't think that this choice is right for me. And I'm a different person than you. Yes. And I started to realize there was a distinct conversation I remember having with you where I was like, hold up a second. You've never been 24 and living in this particular city and doing this thing. That wasn't your, what were you doing when you were 24? And you told me, and I was like, that's not the same thing that I'm doing. How do you even know? You're like, I don't know. I'm just making it up. And I was like, okay, I don't have to listen to this anymore. <laughs> yeah. The veil was I mean, lifted. that's true. Papa admits I, to not knowing. <laughs> I would have admitted that much earlier. I don't always know, but it wasn't even admitting to... to not knowing. It was just admitting, yeah, we have different life experiences now and you're an adult and like you have branched far enough off from your life experiences are not the same. But like Parallel. you said, what was the quote about reliving your childhood right. as you are parenting? There's a lot of overlap there. Sure. And then you get to a point and there's way less overlap. Yeah. At 24, I was already married for two years. Huge difference. I don't remember what I was actually doing at 24, but... How about that? Pretty All cool. Right. So, 
Conflict with children, just to get this last point out, is really an opportunity for teaching. This is clearly a way to lay out the behavioral expectations in any given situation. But you have to know what your expectations are and be consistent. Um, you may have to teach the same concept a thousand times before the child actually starts living it. With Kim, it was closer to a million. If you feel like you're having to repeat the same lesson too much, look at your own behavior or the behavior of your partner because you may not be behaving in a way that is consistent with your words and your child is following your behavior and not your words. And sometimes your child is just dense. This week we talked about parent-child conflict and there are three key ways we covered for influencing your children if you are a parent. Those are modeling, coaching, and teaching. Those will help reduce conflict, but when you are in conflict, it's important to acknowledge the child's thoughts and emotions, even though that's difficult for me to accept. Hold the line, the line of power, papa power, and accept influence when it makes sense after you hear the child's needs. Probably not to the extent of giving them cookies before dinner, but hey, that's up to you as a parent. <laughs> Thank you as always for listening and until next time, enjoy the drive. Thank you for listening to the Relationship Road Trip. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we want to know what you think. So write to us at questions at afpsych.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or subscribing with your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes of the show at relationshiproadtrip.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Relationship Road Trip comes out every Wednesday at 7 a.m., so don't forget to tune in next week. The Relationship Road Trip is brought to you by Azevedo Family Psychology, where they are dedicated to helping you create a life worth celebrating. You can learn more about their services at azevedofamilypsychology.com. This podcast is produced by Bear Cave Audio. Bear Cave Audio provides a range of audio services, from original composition to podcast recording and editing. To learn more, go to bearcaveaudio.com or email ben at bearcaveaudio.com. Until we meet again, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back and may the sun shine warm upon your face. Mm -hmm.